0: Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B-word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Doe, where Cash is queen and we hardly know her, but we're still here figuring her out together. Because y'all, season two is here, okay? Hosted every week by me, Maya. Remember? I'm going to be talking to all types of people about their relationship to money. Reality stars, entrepreneurs, financial experts, and even some of my own friends. Basically anyone who will get real with me about their dollars. How they make money, how they spend it, and how they save it. Because I'm trying to retire early, people. Season 2 of The Dough is out on March 21st, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Lemonada.
2: I promise I will do everything in my power. I will not relent until we beat this virus. But I need you, the American people. I need you. I need every American to do their part. And that's not hyperbole. I need you. I need you to get vaccinated when it's your turn and when you can find an opportunity. And to help your family, your friends, your neighbors get vaccinated as well. Because here's the point. If we do all this, if we do our part, if we do this together, by July the 4th, there's a good chance you, your families and friends will be able to get together in your backyard or in your neighborhood and have a cookout and a barbecue and celebrate Independence Day. That doesn't mean large events with lots of people together, but it does mean small groups will be able to get together. After this long, hard year, that will make this Independence Day something truly special, where we not only mark our independence as a nation, but we begin to mark our independence from this virus.
3: Welcome to In the Bubble, I'm Dr. Bob Wachter. You just heard President Joe Biden in his speech to the country last week showing the kind of leadership that we were sorely lacking in 2020. Somehow the president managed to mark the one-year anniversary of the pandemic hitting the shores of the United States with the empathy and uh, remembrances that befits this tragic milestone. But while doing that, he also infused his speech with optimism about the future, uh, real tangible plans about vaccination, about the uh, support package, And importantly, a call for action to all of us. This wasn't passive. We're not victims. We're not just receiving information and instructions. He actually asked us to do our patriotic duty. And I thought that all was very impressive. The optimism seems justified. We're about to hit 100 million doses of vaccine being distributed in the United States, uh, not quite at Israel level, but better than virtually every other developed nation Uh, The president announced that not only will there be enough vaccine for everyone by the end of May, but that everyone will have an opportunity to have their name on the list by the end of April, which is uh, extraordinary. I had uh, dinner with my younger son last night, and he uh, told me that he's going to get his Fauci ouchie in May, which was the first (laughs) time I'd heard that. Apparently, uh, young people, that's what they're calling the vaccine. They're Fauci ouchie. And once I heard that, I can't think of calling it anything else. We're also seeing the impact of vaccination. We're starting to see the numbers fall and disproportionately fall in highly vaccinated populations like older people and, uh, and residents of nursing homes. So the vaccine is working. It's getting out there. Uh, the vaccine news remains excellent. Uh, we've heard a few uh, small concerns, particularly about the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, which is not available in the United States. Uh, but the vaccines that we are using here appear to be incredibly effective and incredibly safe. And even the news about AstraZeneca, I think, is going to turn out okay. I think, you know, what we all know is you're going to see uh, some people have uh, health events after vaccination. The key is, are you seeing more of it in people with vaccines than those who haven't? The variant news is mixed with cases going up in some countries, uh, including some countries in Europe, uh, which is vivid illustration that we have to be careful. But the good news is the cases are going down actually faster in the UK than they are in the US. And in the UK, most of the virus they have is the variant. Uh, we've also had some scientific news that the vaccines do appear to work reasonably well against against the variant. So that's less scary than it was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, We're beginning to open up in most states prudently. In some states, in my judgment, not so much, going a little bit too fast. But we have to watch this carefully and be sure that uh, people are acting carefully. If you've made it a year and have not gotten infected, I don't care if you live in Texas or Mississippi, this is a bad time to get infected. You're a month or two away from getting vaccinated. So please uh, do everything you can to stay safe out there. And importantly, the rates of vaccine acceptance seem to be going up in several surveys, particularly in communities of color. And as the vaccine has been out longer, the acceptance of it, the willingness to get it, the interest in getting it has gone up as well. The one group where it has gone down a little bit appears to be in Republicans. And I'm hoping some of the political leaders in that party push uh, and support the vaccination because it's really important. It will save people's lives. Well, we are a year into the pandemic, and we've chosen to do a three-part series reflecting on the past year, thinking about where we are today, and helping us uh, think about where we might be a year from now. Uh, Hopefully, you've had a chance to listen to the first two installments in the series. I thought they were both wonderful, one with New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy and the other with Ashish Jha, Dean of this uh, Brown University School of Public Health. Today will be the third and last installment in that series, and we'll be talking to Apoorva Mandavili, uh, the science and health correspondent for The New York Times. But before uh, I bring on Porva, we also had a chance to check in with Lana Slavitt to see how she and Andy are doing a year into the pandemic. So uh, let us ring up Lana Slavitt.
4: Hi there.
3: Lana, welcome. I thought it was a nice chance to check in on how you're doing and how Andy's doing. Before we talk about Andy, because we're always talking about him, let's talk about you. It's a year into this thing. How how does it feel for you?
4: Um, it was the, uh, it's the longest, fastest year I think I've ever experienced. Uh, you know, on some level, I can't believe it's been a year. Um, and then there are other days where I can't believe that we are still doing this and it feels like a decade. So, um, but, you know, I'm hanging in there. We know that we're some of the lucky ones.
3: Yeah. So how's Andy doing?
4: He's uh, working a lot. Yeah, <laughs> um, You know, <laughs> so. he's He's sort of in the uh, 18 to 24-hour-a-day mode, I think, most of the time. Um, you know, it's a short-term role, and so every day matters. And I think uh, he's feeling a lot of pressure to get a lot done as quickly as possible and to um, really maximize his time in D.C., Um, but I, I can also tell that he's feeling really hopeful, you know, at the beginning, I think it was, you know, peering into the abyss. And I think now, you know, they feel like they're above ground and they're building up again. And it's a good feeling to see all the statistics improving every day in terms of vaccination numbers and who's getting vaccinated. And, um, you know, you can always do better, but I I really do feel like they're, they're feeling good about the progress made to date. And like, there's light at the end of the tunnel.
3: Well, it's. It's actually unbelievable the amount that they've gotten accomplished in a couple of months if, you know, between taking the vaccination program, which was hobbling along to something that seems to be humming along now to the $1.9 trillion bill to hundred things in between, it just feels like they've been not only working really hard, but actually quite effective.
4: Yeah. No, I think, and I think having a, a team that's focused a hundred percent on this was really essential too. So this isn't a walk chew gum thing. You know, the president can do that. But like, you know, in terms of like the response team, this is all they do mm-hmm. is, you know, worry about getting more vaccinations to more people faster. Um, and it really did take that kind of a focused effort.
3: Has it been a cha- there's so many talented people on the team. Was it a challenge for Andy to figure out what his Precise lane would be. I, he probably had more experience with public and scientific communications than many other people, and that that felt like an obvious thing. Uh, but uh, sort of figuring out who does what was that a challenge for him at all?
4: You know, I think for like two days, and then mm-hmm. um, it. He said it came together pretty quickly. It was pretty obvious. You know that they wanted him to lead a lot of the communication stuff, um, and so you know he moved into that lane very fast um, in terms of the you know thrice weekly briefings and and you know communications with the press and the media and. That, um, you know, he knows how to manage talking points, how to answer questions, um, how to be honest when you don't know and remember to circle back to somebody. And, and then I think on the distribution front, um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, he's just very comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty and calling people and asking for help like corporate leaders and not necessarily knowing what exactly you're going to be asking them, but letting them know what you need. And then, you know, having a a dialogue where they start talking about what they can do um, and then being able to, like, bring in other people to, you know, hone that. So um, a lot of the work he's done has been around bringing in corporate leaders and, um, you know, corporate capabilities into helping on the distribution and vaccine sort of management um, front. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm actually I mean, I think even he was surprised at how quickly he was able to get up to speed and really, you know, start running. Mm -hmm. And he hasn't stopped since. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People ask me all the time, why didn't you go to DC? And I'm like, so I've like been a work widow before. Like, yeah, yeah, not there that much fun. yeah it just would have been like, you know, me hanging out, you know, taking care of errands and things like that. And, you know, I wanted to like sort of live my best life also. So, yeah. you know, we try to see each other at least once a month, but, you know, it's a short-term gig.
3: Well, please uh, give Andy our warmest regards and I'm glad you, you're doing okay. And, uh, yeah. and I think we're all feeling a little bit optimistic uh, about how things are going to be and 4th uh, of July. Sounds great.
4: I've been enjoying the show, Bob. It's great. Thank you. Uh, you know, love your guests. And it was great to hear Phil Murphy on there the other day. That was like nice to see some repeats and yeah. all of that. So, you know, thanks for doing what you're doing. I know Andy feels a lot better having you, well, thank you. on the podcast and, you know, taking care of things.
3: Big shoes to fill, but it's been a great privilege to do it. Thanks so much for being on today.
4: Great. All right. Thanks, guys.
3: Thanks so much to Lana, and it's wonderful to hear how well uh, she and Andy are doing. Uh, Not surprising that Andy's working 24 hours a day because the amount of activity coming out of this White House is really uh, very, very impressive. Well, there's been a lot of attention paid appropriately to how well many health systems have done and performed in the pandemic. Uh, The miracles that were pulled off by some of the pharmaceutical companies in producing these vaccines in record time. Uh, A lot of kudos for essential workers in so many industries uh, that have helped us. But I think there's been a little less attention to another set of individuals who've really made a big difference, and that's journalists, who have helped educate us over the past year about this incredibly confusing, ever-changing uh, virus and pandemic. My wife is a journalist. I have a great respect for what journalists do, and I think in the pandemic, they really have been essential to all of us in keeping us informed and keeping us sane. One of my go-to sources has been a poor of Amanda Mandavili, who covers science and health for The New York Times. Apoorva not only done a terrific job in cutting through the complexity on issues relating to testing or vaccines or variants, but she's also been particularly and I think unusually good at looking around corners, talking about uh, where things are going helping to work through some of the new findings, uh, sometimes before they're fully ripe, which is a courageous thing to do when you're writing for the New York Times, the national paper of record. Uh, But she's really helped us understand where we are, but also uh, to an unusual degree where things are going. And so uh, I felt uh, really privileged to have an opportunity to sit down with Aporva and talk to her about what it's like uh, covering a pandemic and particularly doing it from the perch of the New York Times, really. uh, There's nothing quite like it in in our country, so uh, I really enjoyed this uh, opportunity to chat with a poor of Amanda Vili, and let us call her up. Yeah. Good morning or afternoon, or <laughs> probably both. I don't think we've met before. So I'm Bob Walker. It's nice to see you On Twitter. <laughs> yes, we met on Twitter. Why don't we start, just tell us about your life a year ago. What what were you doing uh, before this thing (laughs) became a thing?
1: I think a year ago, I was just starting to really recognize how big this was going to be Uh, exactly a year ago. I was a little slow, I will say, to recognize that this would be a pandemic. So I wasn't one of those people who, you know, in January or even in early February was convinced it was going to be a pandemic. It took me a little bit longer. So right around this time last year, I was thinking, oh, my God, okay, this is the big one, and everything is going to change now. Um, I remember being really scared, uh, talking to my parents, warning them not to go outside too much, talking to people on my team. I wasn't working at the New York Times then. I was at uh, Spectrum, um, which is an autism news site that I founded, and, you know, talking to my team and telling them how to be careful and also but calming everyone down at the same time. Um, But yeah, a lot changed very quickly.
3: Yeah. Have you been a science correspondent health and health correspondent for a long time? Have you, has this been your field?
1: I have been a science journalist for 20 plus years, but Mm -hmm. most of that I've been an editor. And before I founded Spectrum, I was an infectious disease reporter and editor at at Nature, um, the journal, and this is sort of a return to that. And now I'm just a reporter, and I actually really love it. It's like going back to what I went into journalism for to begin with, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of lost track of how much I love reporting, being an editor for so many years.
3: And having covered infectious diseases and science, as you began to see this thing emerge in January and February, uh, were there examples that, you know, Did you go back to the great influenza and think about that? Or were the things that you'd covered in the last 20 or 30 years, not to say that you were at the great influenza, I understand it was 1918, (laughs) but uh, how did you, uh, what what was the kind of intellectual scaffolding you used to say, oh, this might be like X or Y? What what were those things?
1: Well, obviously SARS, that was the big one that I covered. And because it was also a coronavirus and because it was more widespread or more cases than MERS um, and more on the sort of global Consciousness than MERS. That was the first thing I thought about. I'd also covered bird flu. So those were sort of my reference points. And um, one of the first stories I wrote actually was based partly on what I'd learned about SARS and MERS, which is that uh, with both of those, kids weren't very affected. And I started to notice that even with this, we weren't really hearing much about children being affected. And there was a New England Journal of Medicine paper that came out very early on with some data from Wuhan. And I remember seeing that anybody under 15, it was like the number of cases was so low. And so there was a clue that this was behaving much like those other two coronaviruses. So that was actually the first story I wrote, was that kids seemed to be mostly spared by this virus.
3: So let me ask you about that. Uh, One of the things that has struck me about your reporting over the past year has been that you have... Taken some risks. You've been out there with stories that could have proven to be not true, or things might have, you know, the ball might have bounced a little differently. How did you decide when to pull the trigger on a story, particularly after you came to the New York Times, where the impact of anything you write is going to be multiplied, you know, 10,000x?
1: Yeah, and pretty much all of the coronavirus reporting I've done has been for the Times. So it's from the beginning, the spotlight has been very big for this. I think I really rely on my conversations with scientists. You know, I've been what they call a trade journalist in science journalism, which is that I've written and edited mostly for scientists in my career. And I think that has really helped me understand when scientists are cautious and to read between the lines, to hear their hesitations and caveats. And I think I've also learned how to eavesdrop on their conversations And start to notice when something is becoming a trend um, and only among them hasn't quite filtered out to the mainstream yet. And so that may seem more like a, a real gamble from the outside, but I think for me it's pretty much rooted in some conversations that I have seen taking place or that I've had myself with scientists where I can see that this is where the science is headed.
0: Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media.
4: Can't get enough of your favorite Lemonada Media podcasts? By subscribing to Lemonada Premium today, you'll gain access to fun and inspiring bonus content from all of our podcasts across the Lemonada Media network. As a subscriber, you can listen to never-before-heard interview excerpts, behind-the-scenes segments, and continue to uncover new ways to make life suck less through all of our exclusive subscriber audio. Check out a free trial of Lemonada Premium today in the Apple
0: Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button.
3: Did you appreciate that when you came to the Times that the spotlight would be on to the degree that it was, particularly as COVID emerged as the dominant issue in the world? I'm just thinking about that first article you write about uh, emerging evidence that kids may not get hit quite as badly as adults. The implications of that for the schools and for, you know, everybody is so massive. Did you appreciate that fully as you were as you were writing that article?
1: You know, I, I had some sense of what it can be like to write for The Times and have a really big reaction because I had written an article about Lyme disease about a year before, Um, And I got so much email and so much hate mail and so many tweets. So I I had some sense of how much things can blow up. Um, With that particular COVID kids story, I found out very quickly how many reads it got. And I think that was also a clue to all of us that this was going to be huge. And people were just so interested in every aspect of this. But over the year, I have to say, I am really surprised at the unrelenting nature of the interest and the unrelenting nature of the spotlight. I've, I've had been on the receiving end of some very, very nasty attacks, and I wasn't quite expecting that.
3: Yeah. And I noticed a couple of two weeks ago on Twitter, uh, you talked about how, you know, you say one thing and then a, a white male journalist says something comparable. I think this was about the New York versus the California variants. And you get hammered in uh, in Twitter, and the white male journalist does not. First of all, maybe describe that to us, and second of all, did that? How has that made you feel?
1: It's not new, right? This happens all the time, but I think that was a very stark example where it was like you could almost compare them side by side. Um, this was, you know, Carl Zimmer, and I don't think he would mind me saying that because he was quite open about it as well. So we both write for the New York Times. He wrote about the California variant, and that was almost all based on unpublished data and not even preprint data. So it's what we call pre-preprint now, right? So Mm -hmm. everything was just based on talking to the scientists and not actually having data that all the other scientists can see out there on MedArchive or BioArchive. And he didn't get a lot of pushback. Uh, I think the few people who did engage with him did so very respectfully. You know, they asked questions and then they heard his answers and they went away. And I did the exact same thing. If anything, I would say that mine was a little less um, questionable or, you know, tricky because I wrote about two different sets of data. And one was a a preprint that was already out. And the other one came out within 12 hours of my writing the story. And yet I was just raked over the coals at how irresponsible I was and how dare I write about this when scientists haven't had a chance to look at it and it just started there, and it just went on and on. And I think the more I tried to actually defend myself, it was like this, the worse it got. It was like I was just supposed to take it lying down and not even speak up for myself.
3: First of all, how does that feel? And second of all, how does that affect your journalism going forward?
1: Well, it doesn't feel great. Um, but, you know, I've been, I think one of the ways I've coped during this pandemic with these things, with, you know, being treated the way I have been is to just call attention to it because I think these things continue when they are in the dark or when they continue without anyone calling them out and the public eye on it. So I just called it out. And Carl, who's a good friend and, you know, a great journalist, um, also wrote about it very publicly and, you know, in his tweets. And um, I think that was how I cope with all of these things is just by First of all, being very confident that I'm doing my job, this is my job, is to bring information to light. Not everyone is going to like it. Scientists may not like the pace at which it happens, but journalism doesn't work at the pace of science. Sometimes it does, but often it's faster than science, and it has to be, especially in a pandemic like this. So a lot of it is just being very clear about what my job is and what my job is not, and where my allegiance lies, it lies with my readers. It does not lie with my sources.
3: Yeah, you know, good for you. I, I have to say that uh, one of the most instructive things for me this year has been exactly that—that that I've been tweeting a lot and I've been trying—I've been a little bit out there and trying to be ahead of the curve. And I have found the response has been wonderful and supportive and benign. And I'm going to visit my father who's dying and oh i hope your dad's okay and then i hear from colleagues who are women or particularly people of color and their world on twitter is completely different and i would have been clueless about that unless people told me that uh it's it's very sad um but yeah i think shining the light on is really important and i appreciate you doing that
1: thank you yeah i've gotten some incredibly horrific emails the last few weeks so it's, it can take a toll over time
3: Yeah. Wow. Terrible. Um, Maybe a couple more questions about the the origins. Uh, You said you might have underplayed it a little bit. Uh, What was the moment that told you this was going to be as huge as it became?
1: You know, there wasn't one moment. I think it was a sort of slow realization on my part over a course of probably a couple of weeks, starting around early to mid-February, that this was going to be here. I think part of that was hearing about the cases on the West Coast uh, and then hearing about cases in New York and knowing that there was community transmission already because the people who were being identified had no travel history. And, you know, once you know that it's in the communities here and that it's already spreading, you just realize, okay, this is here. And I think one particular thing that really struck me very early on is the possibility of asymptomatic transmission, because that was very different than SARS and MERS. And when people started talking about that as a possibility with this virus, everything just changed. How so? Well, it's very hard to control something that you don't know is being transmitted. I think with SARS and MERS, pretty much everyone who was infected had symptoms and had strong symptoms. And so you could see who they were, you could isolate them. It just, you know, you see the enemy. Whereas with this virus, it, a lot of the transmission was happening before people knew they were sick. So, you know, isolating people after the fact, by the time they get sick and then go get tested and then they get the results, you know, it's like locking the barn after the horse is gone. So that really changed the picture in, in terms of how quickly we would be able to contain it.
3: Right. It made all the temperature checking uh, sort of theater in a way. It, 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 exactly. The, the usual the usual things that we did weren't going to work very well. Um. Something you already hinted at, but I think was really a mega trend for the year was the way science came out and the preprints and the pre-preprints and the peer review on Twitter and <laughs> all of that. So, tell us a little bit about how that trend played out for you and how that has changed the nature of your work.
1: Well, before the pandemic. Uh, when I was at Spectrum, for example, we had a rule that we would never cover preprints because it hadn't been through peer review. We wanted it to sort of go through the, the review process um, and only cover things that had already been vetted to a certain extent. But that just wasn't going to be the case with this pandemic. And it was obvious early on that the journals were just not able to process papers fast enough to accommodate the pace at which information was coming out. And more and more people, I think especially biologists and biomedical researchers, you know, traditionally been not very comfortable publishing preprints, having preprints, and they seem to be putting things out more and more on preprint servers. So in both ways, it became obvious that the preprint servers were where all of the science was going to be coming out. So I, I signed on to, you know, email alerts from both BioArchive and my MedArchive, so that I would know when preprints went up. And the deluge of preprints was just massive. Um, And for a while, you know, we were just looking at preprints, we're just looking at data that was coming out. Uh, But I think that has slowed down quite a bit to now where I only cover a preprint if it's really seems extremely important, extremely interesting, um, of some public relevance that's quite strong. Otherwise, you know, it's still try and sort of wait for, the paper or at least have multiple preprints that are showing the same trend before we write about it.
3: What do you think the impact of it has been on science and on science journalism? It's, it strikes me it's yet another form of disintermediation that people can sort of go directly to the public without trusted vetters. Uh, and you could see things about that that are good and things about that that we've seen in the rest of our life that are pretty scary and pretty bad. What do you think the net of it is?
1: You know, I think science journalists dislike science by press release just as much as scientists do. Mm -hmm. And we have pretty good bullshit detectors for the most part. So when we are approached to cover something and, you know, we know that it hasn't been through peer review, we have our alarms going off too. And the key for me has always been to have sources that I trust, that I can go to and say, hey, I'm hearing this. What do you think about this? Um, So much depends, too, on who the person is, you know, if they have a history already of having published really good work, if it's a good lab, um, if the finding makes sense and it's consistent with what we are hearing rather than some completely crazy outlier of information. So there are a lot of different ways that you can sort of vet these things. And I think beyond a certain point, if I wasn't able to tell that something was good or not. I would go to my sources. And of course, every single thing that I've written, and I think that most science journalists write, you know, you you send out whatever that information is, whether that's the pre-preprint or the preprint or whatever it is, to a, a number of scientists who can look at the data. And so even if not every scientist out there can see the data, you've had a bunch of scientists look at it and say, yes, this looks solid, this looks legitimate.
3: Got it. I'm going to pull up to the present in a sec. Maybe last question on the past year. Um, You're a science journalist. You're not a political journalist. How did you deal with the politicization of of everything that happened pretty early? You know, it it has been said when uh, when science meets politics, you get politics. And so I I think a fair number of journalists who are covering science – wanted to steer clear of the politics, but then sort of had to recognize at some point there was no, almost no way to do it. How did you manage that?
1: I think I tried to keep my eye really on the science, to be honest with you. I mean, at some point, you just have to ignore what the politicians are saying. And I didn't want to spend too much of my time spinning my wheels and and countering the misinformation. Uh, because first of all, we have an actual desk of people whose job it is at the times to find these kinds of misinformation and, and write articles to counter that. So that frees us up that uh, the science journalists to really just be writing about the science instead of spending all our time um, getting rid of the misinformation out there. And also, I think the best way to counter misinformation, or even disinformation is to have good information out there. It's to have good science and good clear messaging about what is actually happening. So that's where I put my focus. And, you know, you said when science and politics meet, it's politics. I tried to think of it as when science and politics meet, it's still science. Just because politicians are not talking about it doesn't make it any less scientific.
3: Yeah. Uh, th- th- all true. Did you feel like you had a special obligation, for example, on masks or on hydroxychloroquine or on any, you know, once the issues became politicized, did that cause you to redouble your efforts on the science?
1: Yeah, I would definitely say this time, I think with the agencies, especially with the CDC and the FDA, with not being able to more or less take what they said at face value, that made things really difficult. Um, not that you ever want to completely trust everything the agencies say, because it's always a little bit political, but the the degree of um, obfuscation and misinformation and misdirection was really heavy this time. And as the pandemic went on, you know, in the fall last year, for example, we did a lot of pieces about the ways in which the White House was actually actively um, distorting the information that was coming out of the CDC. And so, you know, some of it was uncovering that and reporting on that. But um, the masks, you know, I think it was really a misstep on the part of the CDC and the WHO to make decisions about whether to recommend masks based on availability or financial considerations. I think they should have trusted the public and they should have been upfront about what was really the case. You know, one of the early conversations I had was with my mother um, saying to her that she should cover her face when she goes out, you know, even if it's just with the edge of her sari. She lives in India. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, but they're saying that masks aren't important. But I said to her, well, it's a physical barrier. How could it not help? At the the very worst, it's not going to do anything, but, you know, might as well. So the idea that the WHO and the CDC were telling us it does nothing, it was just baffling.
3: Yeah. Must be nice to have you as her child (laughs) to give give her the cutting edge science. Hey,
4: Lemonada listeners, we want to hear from you. You know, we love our sponsors for a ton of reasons, but one of the main ones is that they help us keep the lights on. And there's a really easy way that you can help us draw new advertisers and hear ads for things you're most interested in. Filling out our quick anonymous survey at lemonadamedia.com survey. By just answering a few questions, you can help us find new brands to connect with and also share feedback about show content you'd like to see across the network. And to sweeten the deal, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. I promise the survey is short and sweet and will help us play ads you don't want to skip and also keep bringing you content you love. Just go to LemonadaMedia.com slash survey. People love to pretend that there are simple formulas for living your best life now. Eat this and you won't get sick. Manifest it and everything will work out. But there are some things you can choose, and some things you can't. And it's okay that life isn't always getting better. I'm Kate Bowler, and on Everything Happens, I speak with kind, smart, funny people about life as it really is. Beautiful, terrible, and everything in between. Let's be human together. Everything Happens is available
0: wherever you get your podcasts.
3: All right, let's move to the present. Um, As you survey the landscape now, there are a lot of cross-cutting forces, Uh, vaccines, variants, governors beginning to open, others not. Just give us your uh, view of where we currently stand.
1: We're so close to the end. I really feel that we're so close to the end. Not the end as in the virus will be gone forever, but just the end as in the horrific deaths and hospitalizations and these these peaks of cases, I feel like we're so close to that end. And it's just really demoralizing to hear about all of these governors lifting restrictions just a little too soon. Um, I recently wrote a piece about what the next few months might look like, and I spoke to 21 experts, and almost all of them said there would be a fourth wave. And it just you know, depends on what, how we act, how big that wave will be. And one of the big factors in determining that is behavior, is what politicians do and what the average citizen does in the next few weeks. You know, if we can hang on and continue to be cautious, that fourth wave may be very small. But if we lift restrictions too soon, it could be yet another wave of, if not horrible deaths, at least a lot of cases and at least some hospitalizations and people with perhaps long covid so it's been frustrating to see that this close to the end we are still not willing to learn our lessons. It's, you know, also been quite uh, whiplash inducing to be hearing about variants. I think at the end of the year last year, I really thought, okay, we, we now have vaccines. We kind of know what we're fighting, we know how to fight it, it's going to be okay. And then the, we started hearing about the variants one after the other. And I wrote, I think, the first variant story that was, you know, an expansive look at it uh, right around Christmas. And I remember talking to all those scientists and thinking, what is this? I thought we were done. It's just so <laughs> dispiriting.
3: Exactly the same feeling. I remember November 8th when the Pfizer data came out. I said, all right, you know, you can see the end game here. And it'll be a little bumpy, but we'll get there. And I had spent the year talking to journalists, and they would say, "What about this mutation?" I say, "Oh, you know, it's just different fingerprints. It's not. It doesn't mean anything." And then turned out, well, that's not quite right. So, where where do you think we are on the variants? I mean, there there are two competing narratives now. Which is one is we're ahead of the curve, and yes, B one one seven will take over in the U.S. But if you look at the UK, they seem to have uh, the, their curve is doing fine. And the second is some combination of that or these more vaccine-resistant variants actually are going to be major players and really get in the way of moving toward resolution. Where, Where do you come down on that?
1: I think we will see one or the other of those variants really take off in the U.S. Maybe not quite to the extent that it did in the U.K., but I think we will because, you know, people love to talk about how the U.K.'s numbers came down despite the variants. But uh, that's not where we are. They, that, they, those numbers went up in September, and they didn't start coming down until after they imposed some very strict lockdowns. Uh, and I don't think we are willing to do that here in the United States. Um, also, you know, B117 is just one of them, right? And we've now been hearing about the one in New York City and the one in Oregon, probably many more that have this E484K mutation, the the one that's vaccine resistant, as you pointed out, and that, you know, keeps popping up um, and there's now a version with you know B117 with that E484K and that that's sort of like the worst of all worlds you know it's perhaps transmissible and immune resistant um hopefully it won't take off but you know and hopefully it hopefully B117 will take off instead it's sort of weird to um hope yeah. that
3: <laughs> rooting for B117 right. <laughs> right right to
1: root for the more transmissible one over the vaccine resistant one um mm-hmm. yeah i think we will probably see some Some surge of B one one seven cases, and um, but you know, hopefully, it'll be short lived because we are making good progress with the vaccines, and any minute now we're going to really start seeing those effects, and it'll just be a question of getting to a point where the the benefit from the vaccines is higher than the B one one seven surge.
3: How do you think your readership has changed over the past year? It strikes me that you and others have thrown an awful lot of science at people. Do you think people are more sophisticated than they were?
1: I think so. I think there is a lot more understanding of what a virus is, what variants are. I hear people talking about all of these terms that I would never have expected from the average person. And I have thrown some pretty technical stuff at people over this last year and I don't know. People seem unfazed. Some of the most nerdy things I have written have been our biggest hits. So I don't really understand what's going on there, but people definitely seem hungry to know what's going on. Maybe that's because everybody's home and we feel so out of control. And, you know, we just want some sense of control by learning everything about this virus. But yeah, certainly um, I've been really blown away by the interest in some of the really geekier aspects of things I've written.
3: Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's a combination of existential dread meets a topic that actually is unbelievably interesting. I mean, I almost hate to say that because it's so terrible, but if you just took a step back and said, we're going to do a college course— on all things COVID, whether it's the hard science, virology, epidemiology, vaccinology, immunology, to the softer sciences of sociology and politics and behavioral you know, change and all that. It's extraordinarily interesting at every dimension.
1: I think so. And I think, you know, immunology is extremely complicated, but people seemed very willing to learn it. They wanted to know what are antibodies, what are T cells. You've got all kinds of people talking about these things. And um, I would like to think that you know, maybe not for everybody, but that some proportion of people did come around to really understanding why science matters and that science is important and interesting and doesn't have to be scary.
3: Yeah, that might be a good thing that comes out of it. All right. Where do you think we will be a year from now with COVID? What does the future hold for us?
1: I think it'll be back to somewhat of a normalish life, but I hesitate to say normal because I don't think we will ever fully go back to the way things were. I don't think that people will be wearing masks, except maybe some subset of people that have discovered that they never get sick because they (laughs) wear masks. And I Mm -hmm. I think some people will continue to do that. But on the whole, I think people will stop wearing masks. Um, I think we'll all go back to those, you know, movie theaters and bowling alleys and all of the rest. But I think we're all a little changed by what happened. And I think we, we will remember this time and, you know, how quickly things... Changed for everyone. I I would like to think that it will make us all more appreciative of the freedoms that we enjoy on a regular basis.
3: Do you think we all have booster shots in our future?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I do. Um, hopefully, not too many. I think there are some good indications that you know, if they made a, a booster against the the South African variant, for example, B one three five one, that that would actually take care of all the other variants out there. So at least in the short run, maybe that's the only one we would need. Um, I think it's a matter of how often we will need them, but at least as long as the rest of the world is not vaccinated, I think we can expect to see more variants coming up. We can expect to see more clusters, even in countries where most people are vaccinated and there will be, you know, the virus will still be around. So we will need boosters. I think some people would need them more often than others. You know, older people, people who are immunocompromised and don't put up a very strong immune response, they may need them more often, but yeah, I do see them.
3: And how do you believe the world of journalism will have been changed a year from now? How will you be dealing with preprints and all the, the things that sort of took on an extra sense of urgency because of COVID?
1: I do think that science journalists will look at preprints a little differently. You know, so much is going to depend on whether scientists continue to publish on preprint servers, and I think they will. And I don't think that I'll stop looking at them, at least to see what the trends are, you know, if not to actively cover each one.
3: Yeah. My wife still freelances for the Times and wrote for the New York Times on staff for many years. So I kind of have a sense of what it feels like, but the level of scrutiny, the level of celebrity that you had this year will probably not be replicated again in your career. You'll still be reporting from the New York Times and people are still going to read you and you'll get a lot of feedback, but nothing, probably not not like this. Uh, Will you be happy for that to to go away if it does to some extent, or will you be sad about that?
1: I don't know. I think I'll have mixed feelings. I think um, it's been lovely to feel like everything you write is important to people and that people read it and cherish it and want to know the information. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, we've I've had so much negative, uh, you know, negative reaction, so many negative reactions, so much hostility and anger directed at me that it'll be really nice not to have to deal with that. So it'll be a mixed bag. I'd like to think that you know, even if people aren't paying as much attention because it's not COVID, um, they will still care about infectious diseases a little bit more than they did before, because now they understand why it's so important.
3: Yeah. And how will you calibrate your response to the inevitable next threat? You know, there will be in a year or two or five, an emerging infection that you hear a report of from somewhere. And how do we, prevent the possibility that we're now going to overreact because everything, this might, of course, this, of course, is going to be the new COVID, every story. And as we know from SARS and MERS and swine flu, and most things are not. This is, is, you know, this is the last time anything was like this. It was 102 years ago. So how are you going to get that right as the story emerges?
1: I'm a naturally cautious person. Honestly, I, I, you know, even with this virus. I think the reason it took me so long to acknowledge that this was really going to be a pandemic is because I I don't like to panic people and talk about things until I can be somewhat sure that it's going to happen. uh, Because I think it's just, it's so frightening to think that your world is going to be taken over by a virus. So I, you know, I might be a little more scared on the inside having lived through this once, but I think, uh, and I hope that in my writing, at least, I will continue to be cautious and want to see some real signs before i start to you know um, have beat the drums and get the information out
3: yeah well i want to thank you for all of your writing and your honesty and as i as i have said i i think you have uh, been someone who has taken the science and synthesized it extraordinarily well and also not been Uh, afraid to kind of be a little bit out there from time to time, uh, which I know is risky when you know that many people are going to be scrutinizing every word you write. But uh, your track record was unbelievably good. I think you tended to be right on almost everything. And uh, it made a difference and helped a lot of people, including me, understand this far better than we would have. So grateful for all of that.
1: Thank you so much. That's so nice to hear.
3: That was terrific. I, I really uh, love the way Porva thinks through complicated issues. You can see why she's such a quality journalist. And um, I personally uh, feel like I owe her a great debt of gratitude. And not only just to her, but there's so many journalists this year uh, who have made a difference in our understanding of what's going on and what what's coming at us, and uh, uh, it's, it is a hard job. Uh, particularly, as she mentioned, as a generalist, you're constantly having to learn new things and talk to people to and sift out wheat from chaff. And uh, and if you're at a place like the New York Times, my, my wife Katie wrote for the Times for many years, uh, you're being pitched constantly and trying to figure out what of which of those pitches are real, which of those pitches uh, are, are not ready for prime time. It's a tough job, and she has done it very, very well. We have a number of other great episodes coming up uh, here on In the Bubble. Uh, Next Monday, we'll have a toolkit, and it's a vaccine toolkit. And you may say, haven't you covered vaccines before? And the answer is yes. But uh, A, it's the most important issue in COVID and maybe in the world today. And the second is, I think the question of vaccines has become more complicated in the last few weeks, particularly with the uh, addition of the J&J vaccine to our armamentarium, uh, and the variants. And so uh, lots of questions came up uh, on the part of our listeners uh, about uh, should you prefer one vaccine over another? Uh, are the vaccines safe in different circumstances, pregnancy being uh, being one of them? How do the vaccines and the variants uh, interact with each other? And, and a ton more. So we had great questions and we will have that toolkit for you uh, next Monday. Uh, the following week, we'll have another toolkit I've been saying for about a month that the hottest issue of the summer, I believe, is going to be the question of vaccine or immunity passports. And when I say that, I'm not talking necessarily about a passport, a la what you need to have on your, in your pocket in order to fly to Europe but uh, evidence of vaccination and whether or not you'll be required to show such evidence when you get on an airplane, get on a train, go into a sports stadium, go into a theater. A lot of really interesting, uh, challenging, legal, ethical, and practical questions around that issue. And we're lucky to have uh, Art Kaplan, who is... uh, One of the top ethicists, uh, medical ethicists in the world, and also uncommonly good at explaining ethically and uh, morally charged issues in ways that are very, very accessible and very interesting. Finally, we talked to Greg Gonsalves of Yale and Carlos Del Rio of Emory. And the episode will focus on what we learned, uh, those of us who lived through the early years of HIV-AIDS, what we learned about epidemics and pandemics, about the public and political response, uh, and how it's relevant to what we're now all learning collectively about COVID. I think you'll find it uh, really fascinating. I started my medical career just as HIV and AIDS were becoming a thing. And there are lots of parallels, although some really profound differences as well. It's really an interesting topic. And uh, both Greg and Carlos were there at the time and uh, very thoughtful about the uh, the lessons from that to today. So I hope you'll listen to that and a lot of other terrific episodes coming up here on In the Bubble. Uh, it sounds like you will get your vaccine in the next couple of months. So please stay safe until then. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. We're a production of Lemonata Media. Chrissy Pease and Alex McGowan produced our show. Our mix is by Ivan Kuriev. Jessica Cordova Kramer and Stephanie Whittleswax executive produced the show. Our theme was composed by Dan Molad and Oliver Hill, and additional music by Ivan Kuriev. You can find out more about our show on social media at In the Bubble Pod. Until next time, stay safe and stay sane. Thanks so much for listening.
0: Last Day from Lemonada Media explores the moments that change us. Those times where you look back and say, whoa, one day I was myself and the next I wasn't. I'm Stephanie Whittleswax, and I have seen time and time again how sharing these stories can change lives. So, do you have a moment in your life that changed you, fundamentally and forever? What happened? How did you move through it? And how did you eventually start again? If you'd like to share your story, go to bit.ly/lastdaystories. B-I-T. L-Y. Slash lastdaystories. We can't wait to hear from you.
2: Hey, friends, it's Megan Trainer and her big bro Ryan Trainer and her husband Daryl Sabara. Each week
1: on our podcast, working on it. We share behind-the-scenes stories and bring you into our hilarious and heartfelt conversations, and sometimes with amazing guests.
2: We tackle everything from navigating Hollywood to mental health, to Megan becoming a mother, Daryl becoming a father, and so much more.
1: We'll get into the nitty-gritty of our lives and leave no detail behind. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. Listen to new episodes out every Wednesday,
0: wherever you get your podcasts.